right, welcome back, all you players, playwrights, do-do-dets, uh, amigos, amigas, everybody in between. So part one with Tim Stommel, we covered, we kind of set the stage for this. You heard about his background. Dude can't hold a job. He's moved around every three years. He's like a fugitive. We we're just talking about fugitives. Murph is like, I, I can't stay in one place very long, man. Moving targets, harder to hit. I got to keep moving. So, hey, but, but you know, I got, I got to say, man, it's, it's in DEA. If you're if you're moving like that, because I did the same thing, you're taking promotions, you know, trying out different things around the world. It's like becoming a gypsy about every two or three years, even now in retirement. You know, we just moved to Florida last year. It's it's like you're ready to go. You're ready. And my wife's the same way. You know, you're ready to pick up, try something. You new. go through Murph's house. He still has shit in boxes. He's like, we may be moving at any moment now. I'm not going to unpack that stuff. And that's true. That's actually true. <laughs> I still got all my beer mugs from college. I got, so I'm in the, uh, I've got a Peloton uh, bike and I, I'm in the Peloton military uh, vets group. And there's one guy on there, they call him Ranger in a cult, Steve Melians. Guy was a badass. I mean, Ranger saw action, jumped out of planes, did all that shit. And he, that's all he does is wear kilts. Now was, he was a E8 when he retired. His wife is still in, in active duty and an officer. She's getting moved around. Since I've been in this group with him for like three years, this is his third move in three years. Jeez. All right. It sounds like he can't hold a job or he's trying to outrun the law. No, it's it's his wife. It's like the army is moving her to this command post and then she's going to training here and then doing that. Ah. It's like the only people making money out of this are the movers that work for the federal government. There you go. There you go. It's oh, a good man. job if you can get it. That's right. Well, hey, let, let us get back now into part two, because part one was really setting the stage. We learned about you. We learned about the uh, groundwork that was laid. Group four now. So you're in group four. And so how did this investigation, we, we're going to call it Queen of the Pacific because it's just kind of a neat title. But I mean, it's it's a major operation, like you said, though, and it's got lots of players. So start laying the groundwork. When did this thing start hitting your radar? How did this come about? Yeah, so what happened was before I got to Miami, couple of guys in the uh, group were working a case i think it started back in like june of 99 and they had a target there this guy andres lopez that they were investigating i think they went up on a title three they saw he was involved with some mexican cocaine organizations and uh they were intercepting his phone and through that intercept they identified another guy out in los angeles this guy carlos pena so these were really the two main targets in their case and again this was before i got there um, they spawned Los Angeles up on a Title III telephone intercept on Pena. And based on the intercepts they got, I think it was a dry conspiracy. I don't think they had any seizures. So it was a conspiracy charge with no drugs really on the table. But they indicted Pena and Lopez in Miami. So that was two indictments that Miami had. And it kind of ended there. I think Miami backed off. That was kind of an invest investigation. So it was, it was an ongoing case, but it wasn't really being actively worked. <clears throat> uh, a few months later, I think it... It was uh, um, Los Angeles, uh, a task force officer out there, reinvestigated Carlos Pena and started a new new wire intercept on Carlos Pena out in California. And that's when they found that Carlos Pena actually hired this guy, Carlos Restrepo, to fly from uh, Los Angeles to New Jersey, and he was going to be transporting some heroin. And that's where that's where really this, this case you're going to see picked back up is it was this guy. Well, let's let's book in so, that real quick, too. So you got on when did you got on DEA when and then when did you move to Miami? I got on DEA in 97 and in 2000, I moved to Miami. So I did three years in D.C. And now this was the fall of 2000 in Miami. All right. So you've only been on DEA for three years. Uh, you're in group four now. And this case kind of starts picking back up. Like you say, it was like a dry hole. I mean, you, what you call the dry conspiracy had conspiracy, but no dope ever got seized because of this. But it kind of went dead, but now it's picking back up again, right? So you you are you have just been assigned to Group Four when this thing starts picking back up. Yeah, and and, and fortunately, a couple of the agents in the group had this old case. They had other cases going on, so they did me a favor. You know, you, you go into a new office, right? You don't have any informants, you don't have any cases, so you really need some help to get going. So these guys handed me this case to run with, and the reason they handed it back to me was this guy Restrepo uh, ended up getting hit in in when he landed in New Jersey coming from L.A. He got he got popped. I think it was with one and a half kilos of heroin. But he he was carrying a Miami cell phone. It was a seven eight six cell phone, and that's where it came back to us now. And, and they let me run with this case, looking at this guy. So this was now. What year was this? This was in two thousand, December of two thousand. So a kilo and a half of heroin, a Colombian heroin. Was it Mexican or Colombian? Uh probably Mexican. It probably originated, though, in, in Colombia at the time. It was coming through Mexico, but probably a good chance it was uh, Colombian heroin. 
And so by this time, heroin is pretty prevalent in the United States, right? Yeah, Miami, that's pretty much all we were working. My seven years in Miami was heroin coming through. Which is just, it's unbelievable. I mean, it just, it went from Coke to heroin and, yeah. uh, you know, went More from money. Money to Coke to heroin. I was going to say, how much How much was a kilo of heroin at that time, if you remember? Oh, geez, I think it was up around 36,000. But yeah, that's so equivalent pretty... for a kilo of Coke, right? Or no, uh, no, no. You know what? I can't even remember. No, I can't even would, remember back then. That would be a little bit high for a kilo of Coke. But if you think back, you know, when heroin was king, when it was, when the Southwest and Southeast Asian heroin coming into New York City in the Northeast, kilos are going for like $250,000 for one kilo. And now all of a sudden you get the, you know, you got the Mexicans producing, you know, the black tar, the brown heroin and some white. Then you got the Colombians who have perfected it and they're producing Colombian uh, heroin. And they were able to cut the price down to 50,000 just to start with. I mean, it, it, we went for several years. You couldn't even get Asian heroin in the United States because there was no money in it for them. Yeah, I may have misquoted there. It may have been up around 60, 70. I can't even remember. Yeah, it's, I can't remember. It's been a long time. I know time. And I'm sure we, you're missing your afternoon nap, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> He's not the only one who gets cranky when they don't get their nap. Damn right. Don't piss me off. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so they, but, but like you say, you're a new agent. You got to develop a case. So is the reason they gave it to you because they thought it was a dry hole, like you're not going to get anything out of this? Or did they give it to you because, hey, there's really something to work here and you got to cut your cut your teeth on something? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure I was giving it because they thought it was a dry hole. They wanted to give away this case if they knew what was going to happen. <laughs> well, hey, True case, know, there's no way. <laughs> you're, you're being a little humble there, as we're going to find out here in just a few minutes. All right. Well, let's. OK, so take us through. So you get this dropped onto your desk. What do you what do you start doing? No, obviously, we start doing our general investigation, right? We want to see who Carlos Restrepo is. He lives in Miami. We identify him. And, um, you know, obviously, they hand us their intercepted calls. So we start doing our investigation and, and looking at his phone. And, and obviously, again, we've got the recorded calls on the phone, um, you know, typical federal Title III. And, and I don't know if I'm sure other people mentioned it's not easy getting a Title III. A telephone intercept federal takes an act of God. It really is. You know, people think their rights are being violated out there. To get a Title III intercept in the U.S. takes months of work and, and a lot, a lot of writing. It is really hard work. Um, so what we do, we start looking at this phone, and the problem we're seeing is, and th this was technology at the time, and um, cell phones, and, and it's kind of, you look at technology, and, and we'll talk later on about, you know, I'm working for Magnet Forensics now, a forensics company, and we're dealing with phones daily. You know, our software is used to analyze phones. And at the time, these phones, SIM cards just came out. This is in 2000 now. So SIM cards just came on the market. But what really helped us, and you're going to see as this investigation continues, is that if you bought a SIM card, it had to be for your company. So if you had a voice stream phone, you had to buy voice stream SIM cards. You couldn't jump from AT&T to other companies. You had to stay with the same phone company. But we found out that Restrepo was pretty much getting rid of his phone every week, changing his phone. And anybody that's done a Title III intercept knows you're not going to get up on a phone in a week. I mean, two to three months if you're lucky, federal. And you know something, Tim, the other thing, too, the other problem at that time, and I think it was Louis Free who tried to address it when he was at the Bureau. It's like, quit thinking about tapping a phone. Talk about tapping a person, because exactly to that point, if all they do is they change their phone every week, you've just created a paperwork nightmare that every week you've got to go back and re, you know, go back through this whole process again. It's about the person not the device, for, but for too long, right? They were so focused on the device. Yeah, and, and actually, that's called a roving wire intercept. And, and there weren't many at the time. It was kind of rare to get one, but that's what we pursued. I had an aggressive prosecutor, Dave Weinstein, best prosecutor I probably ever had. Uh, works private practice now, but he became chief of narcotics later on. But just an amazing, aggressive, very smart prosecutor. And he worked with me, and we we had identifying all these phones and every phone you identify right you've got a you know when was it started how much time's on it when was the last incoming call not only do you got to show calls to the target or the targets you know but to other targets you don't know right you've got to give justification you want to intercept this phone because you know let's say you have an informant and my informant calls your phone well we're already getting that conversation we don't need that you got to prove to the court why he's he got to identify other people he's calling so you really got to do your work on those phones and, and show that other numbers are other bad guys out there. So it really takes a lot of work. And uh, But basically, we end up getting a, a roving wire intercept on him. It 
started in June 8th of 2001. So this is about six months later now. Um, and again, you know, you'll identify a phone, right? You'll send it to the prosecutor and your affidavit. I think our affidavits were like 100 pages long. So these these are works of art. I mean, they're long, a lot of information, showing all the phones, what he's on now. And uh, we, we get to the prosecutor. You know, of course, prosecutor is going to review it. He's going to send it back and forth. After he gets done with it, it's got to go up to Maine Justice in Washington, D.C. The lawyers up in Maine Justice got to review it. They got to approve it before he can get up on a federal wire and up. Now you're a couple of weeks in and the phone's changed again, right? So it was just impossible. So, again, we were able to write this roving intercept for actually Carlos Restrepo and any cellular telephones utilized by Carlos Restrepo. So it didn't matter what phone number it was. We could intercept any phone he had. So um, that was the, the, really the basis of our, of our Title III intercept. And, again, we got that. This is now about six months later, June of 2001. We got that wire intercept from the judge. If I can just – and I'm, I don't want to go backwards here, but just to – uh, add on to what you said about getting a wiretap on anybody's phone. And when we say Title III, everyone, that we're talking about wiretaps. It, it was so difficult because it is the mo one of the most inv in invasive investigative tools we have available to us. And you're really required to exhaust all other investigative means just before you even start thinking about a Title III. And as an example, when I was in Greensboro, and in my whole career, I only, I only did one Title III, and that was in North Carolina. That's how work intensive they are. But to meet the requirements that we've exhausted all of our means, we even and suited up in ghillie suits, went out, and this was out in the country, the, the country in North Carolina, you know, we're outside, uh, not in any city, and had an agent drive us in a van, and he slowed down, and, and two of us bailed out of the van and went right into the woods, and we crawled, and we spent hours out there trying to get as close as we could to the suspect's house. And we actually got within sight of it, but then everybody's got dogs, you know, and the dogs hear you or they smell you or, or they whatever, you know. So that's the extent that, that you have to go to before you can get a Title III. So this, it's not just, hey, let's start this on a Title III. That's your last investigative means. No, Murph, they were just screwing with you as the new guy. Hey, Murph, dress up in the suit. We're going to throw you out in the woods and get rid of you for a couple of days. Well, this, is after dogs. We, this is after we'd killed Escobar. They weren't screwing with me too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll find you'll find even within DEA, you'll find certain divisions, especially different political divisions like California, where usually agents will go with state wire intercepts just because the federal wire intercepts are so hard to get. And, and the state police have an easier time even tracking orders and things. The federal, if you get a federal intercept, you've really done your work, you know, and, and federal cases in general. You'll see in, in this case, I mean, federal cases, I didn't have one person in this case go to trial. So. Yeah, you'll see how federal cases are really solid. So, it, it was a night. It was a nightmare doing a wiretap. You wrote the affidavit, which is like writing a war piece. Then you had to, you remember Pat Medeiros up in SO oh, yeah. Special Operations yep. Division. You had to send it to Pat and let her shop review it. And then it came back to the prosecutor, and then it had to go to OEO Office of Enforcement Operations and the Department of Justice. It was it's a nightmare. It's a freaking nightmare. Yeah, absolute nightmare for sure. All right, so can continue on this journey. So uh, Murph is responsible for that last digression. He said, we don't want to go backwards, <laughs> but there's a reason to drink. So there's your reason to drink. Digression yeah. number two. Hey, uh, use me anytime you want to for a reason right, to drink. That's for drink. Um, so, so you start getting this. So how does this start? So you start doing this. Uh, you build the stuff. You finally get the wiretap. What kind of, what are you doing in the six months while you're trying to get the wiretap? Is there any movement in the case? Yeah, your typical surveillance. I mean, not a lot. You know, surveillance, following him around, just trying to get as much intel as you can on the guy. But really, it's when we get up on the telephone intercepts where we really started seeing more of the organization. He was kind of a lower-level man in the organization. We really started focusing on this guy, Pedro Osorio, he was talking to. He's the one that really was drawing into our attention. That seemed a little higher up. And again, right, we're trying to develop the organization. Uh, one of the first events that really happened, it was about two weeks into the intercept, is uh, – Carlos Restrepo and this guy, Pedro Rosario, that we were starting to look at also, uh, we knew they were going to the Fort Lauderdale airport and they were headed up to New Jersey. And we did surveillance on them, followed them to the airport uh, up in Fort Lauderdale, uh, watched them board a flight to New Jersey. And we got a hold of DEA New Jersey. And when they landed in, in New Jersey, DEA New Jersey took over the surveillance on them, uh, followed them into Manhattan. And they did a bunch of different things, but ultimately they followed them into a parking garage where they met with a car, they felt it was going to be a stash car. I think we'd picked up, we'd picked up often wire intercepts that they were going to be uh, delivering something up there. But they met with this other car. DEA jumped on it, and after everything was said and done, they ended up finding 70 keys of cocaine 
in that car. So that was really our first first hit on the case that we could tie to these guys. So now at that point, was that the most dope you had seized? Yeah, I wasn't up there, but yeah, that was the most dope. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and it's, uh, it's it's cool to make a hit like that because it justifies all the work you're doing, and you know you're just beginning. Oh yeah, well, and you don't you don't know that, right? I mean, at this point, this could have been the highlight of the case, right? You have no idea where it's headed, and you'll see this is like tip of the iceberg. I mean, this is like a sample on a case like this, and we'll talk about a sample later on. It's a pretty good story, but um, so anyway, we get this. They, they take the seventy keys, and, and of course, uh, Carlos Restrepo and Rosario Pedro Rosario return back to Miami, um, and I think they arrested whatever mopes they had in the car at the time that were, had these seventy keys. Again, it was a stash car. They weren't directly there. It was being done without their presence. Uh, you know, it was a handover. So um, that was really the first hit. And it wasn't probably a few weeks later, July 20th, we had the second one again where it was this time it was just Carlos Restrepo, but we knew he was going to be flying up to Chicago. We followed him to the Fort Lauderdale airport. And again, watch him get on a plane. He has a Chicago, GA Chicago. And this is what's great about GA, right? We can operate anywhere. GA Chicago follows him off the plane. Um, They follow him to a hotel. He enters the hotel with a suitcase and he leaves a little bit later with a duffel bag out of this hotel. Same day, he goes back to the airport. They follow him to the airport, and they did an airport interdiction stop on him and ended up getting $70,000 of cash. It was rolled up and stashed in clothes. So, again, just building our case against these guys right now. We got $70,000 seizure, again, up in Chicago. This this actually, though, this seizure, as you see, as we get later in the case, this really this is where we first start seeing Sandra come into play, and this was related to Sandra, uh, the queen of the Pacific down in Mexico. But uh, we didn't know it at the time, but. Well, and and that's the goal of these investigations is you want to continually climb the ladder, get to the higher levels, get it, you know, ultimately you want to get to the very top, the source of supply. Um, and, you know, a lot of people say, well, you take the main, main guy out. Did you take the organization? Not always. Sometimes you, you just, you get parts of the organization, but man, when you take them all out, that's pretty significant. But the other, the way you get their attention, right? You can take their dope, but once you start taking their money. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can make them well, cry. Well, the thing you'll see is, and, and, you get different types of agents out there, but there is agents, they get a hit, 70 keys, they move on to the next case, right? Not everybody tries to work the case to the next level, but to me, that's the excitement of it, right? I mean, you could have a case in North Dakota that ties back to Chicago, that ties back to Mexico, that ties to the cartel in Colombia. There's nothing to stop you, right? But not everybody has that drive and energy, you know, take the 70 keys, let's call it a day and let's go to the next case, right? It's easy to do, so. There's a there's a saying in DEA: little cases, little problems; big cases, big problems; no cases, no problems. <laughs> it is so true. <laughs> and no cases, no promotions; no cases. Uh, yeah. Oh, you gonna have some explaining to do when inspections yeah. come around if you, you don't have any cases. You can't make a case. Well, okay, we have the job for you. It's uh, it's over in um, uh, FBI. Uh, <laughs> I like we said that. Yeah, swing, swing. Hey, we have to. It's our one token uh, reach out to the FBI. <laughs> Look, there are friends, but state law requires us to make fun of the FBI at least once on every podcast. So there's our yeah. time. We met our statutory uh, obligation. So all right. So you start. So how does the cash now? Does Restrepo? Does he turn? Does he roll? No, no. They just let him go. I mean, you know, we want to keep. We're on obviously Title Three intercepts. The last thing, or phone intercepts. The last thing we want to do is wreck our case. So they just take the money and let them go, and that's typical on on these types of cases. But so how did how did how did you guys play it off to where he didn't think that this was because of your Title Three and your surveillance, and it was more just a chance interdiction? Did you do kind of a walled off thing? Did you have the airport police do it and take it, or were you guys involved directly in the seizure? No, I'm sure they just had the airport police do it. I wasn't up there. I don't, I don't recall at the time, but that's generally how we would operate. And we do that on a lot of Title Threes, right? You know, car headed north with heroin, have the troopers pull it over, just take the dope, and and, and D is not involved. Have the troopers pull it over because they know troopers <laughs> are going to get the damn job done. There That's because go. they know they have the time because they're not changing the tire or running, getting somebody some gas for their car. That's uh, what you're they thinking know. about the fire department. <laughs> those, are the, those are the ones that have time. All right. So uh, anyway, but back to you here, Tim. Um so you've got the seizure. So how does that seizure generate activity on the Title Three to where you start getting this good stuff? Yeah, well, basically at this point, I mean, those are two seizures. But really what we did at this point, based on the intercepts we had with Pedro Rosario 
we kind of backed off of Carlos Restrepo and we decided to spin up on, on Pedro Osorio and his phones. And again, we had the conversations off of Restrepo's phone, right? So we had the dirty calls we needed and we had, uh, and Restrepo on, on Pedro Osorio's phone, we had target numbers in Mexico, Colombia. He looked like a bigger fish that we really wanted to go after. Uh, but the same thing, he was changing his phone every single week. Um, we actually wrote a Title III again, roving intercept affidavit. Uh, again, act of God. These things are massive, a lot of work. But we got, uh, just jump forward a little bit here. We were up on his phones for three months. And just to give you an idea, we were up on 20 cellular telephones over three months. And it, But this was so easy at the time because what he would do is, as soon as his phone would go dead, we had a, a contact we could call up in New Jersey and voice stream. And we'd call her up immediately. This is usually after 12, 24 hours, his phone was dead and say, hey, you guys got this, uh, we got this, your, your phone just went dead. We want to know within the last 24 hours, what phone in your company that your company owns called this Mexico number, this Columbia number, and this New York number. And we'd be up on his new phone. We never missed the phone one time. And what this order allowed us to do, this roving wire intercept, allowed us to get on any phone that we felt was his phone without a judge's permission. So we could just go phone to phone. And, and using that, using that that way of doing things we'd never get up on a bad phone it was always his but i mean you think about it, who's going to be calling the same columbia mexico number new york number in the same day so it, it the worked predictability really well. about it worked in your favor because he thought he was being smart by saying hey i'll get rid of my phone but the thing is he's got to call the same numbers each time yep yeah exactly and obviously with today's technology with whatsapp encrypted messaging and all the things that exist today it's kind it of a would nightmare. be a lot harder to do, but yeah, yeah it's, it's a nightmare. Even changing phone companies, right? What was really amazing when these SIM cards came out too, you could go into an AT&T store and say, give me a free SIM card. And they were handing them out like candy. And all you had to do was activate it and put money on it. So you could get phone numbers anytime you wanted. But again, we were lucky because it had to be the same company at the time. But SIM cards were kind of the Wild West back then. Right. So keep it, keep going there. So you've you done some good work here so far, Tim, but that's not the end of the road here. No, not at all. So now we start intercepting Pedro Zorio, and this is where the fun really begins. You know, we hear him start negotiating loads, and we can tell he's talking about cocaine, but he's talking with people. And Before you get too far into that, I'm sorry, I want to interrupt because I want to ask one question. You got 20 phones going at one time. How many people on the back end do you have in your in your uh, Title III or your wiretap? How many people do you got that are supporting now the operation to listen to these calls, transcribe them, and do kind that kind of stuff? It was 20 phones, but it was one phone at a time. So it was only one phone being listened to at a time. Okay, okay. It sometimes it would be two or three phones. It would usually go dead, but if it was still had money on it, we would have to keep it active. But he was only using one phone at a time. But yeah, I mean, being in Miami, and Steve could tell you, we had you know we had full-time translators on board in the, in the listening suite. So usually there'd be an agent there with two or three translators listening to the phone and, and alerting us to anything that we made to you know, respond to or go out on surveillance on or or react on, but. And there, there's a key right there in that if you're going to do a wiretap, you want it in a foreign language because you can get funding to buy, to hire translators and you don't have to assign agents to sit there 24 hours a day. Yeah. If, if it's English, your agent's got to sit and listen to these phones. But Miami was so much Spanish that Miami actually had an office in the office that was managed by a contract company of translators. So it, Miami was really easy to run a wire intercept. Right. So you've got your your translators are getting everything for you. You're, they're letting you know anything that's actionable. So how often are you guys having to respond to stuff that's coming in over the Title Three as they're translating it? Is it like every day? Is it every hour? Or is it like, do you have fits and spurts? No, really. It's, it comes and goes. It's, it's not that frequent. And, and the thing is, you know, everybody in the group has their cases going on. Everybody's busy. So it's hard running a case like this when you know, the Title Three comes up, people are getting tired, right? Like, okay, hey, it looks like they're running out here. Let's go follow them. And we end up following his car and his wife going to the mall. And, you know, she's meeting with some people. And, and, and agents in the group, they tend to get a little tired after a few of those surveillances where nothing's really happening. Because, again, right, we're trying to learn what he's doing and who's who. So, um, fortunately for me at the time, I, I'd put a, a tracking device on his vehicle. He just got a, and, and at the time, this guy in Murphy, you probably know Pembroke Pines, he just bought, uh, just west of the mall, there's a brand new community. So he just spent $450,000, which probably is about 800,000 now in a brand new house, got a brand new BMW X5. So he was living the good life. He had a wife and daughter. And, uh, you know, so I put a tracking device on his car. So, you know, many times I would just go up by myself. 
put the laptop in my side seat, put up the tracker, and I'd do a one-man surveillance on him, see where he was going, watch what he was doing. Because, again, you know, everybody's got their own cases going on. It's hard tying up your whole group all the time just to sit there and follow his wife going to the mall and different things. So, um, But, yeah, it, it was really sporadic. But I think the bigger thing we were getting was the intel off his phone, which was we knew that he was controlling cocaine coming from Colombia through Mexico to the U.S., um, usually headed up to Chicago, Detroit, New York. And then we had enough calls where we knew that he was moving money back through Mexico to Colombia. Uh, I mean, that was really what we got off the phone. So we didn't get any more seizures off his phones. It was pretty much intelligence and stuff that we could use for the indictment. Because every time he talked about moving cocaine, and that's what's really nice about the federal system, a lot of states don't have good conspiracy charges. But federally, we have some great conspiracy charges. If he talks about moving drugs and taking actions to move the drugs, he could be charged with those drugs, even though they never existed. So, that's you know, and, an act in furtherance, an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. You know, right. yeah, you got him. Between two or more conspirators, you know, and one thing it's it's not common that agents would go out alone like like uh, um, Tim's talking about here, doing surveillance. But if you saw something, your entire group's just a phone call away, right? Yep, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, if you got something hot going, everybody will jump on it. Oh yeah, yeah. You could get. I mean, you could get people if you needed them. I, it was more me actually. I've always been like that my whole career. I hate having people do things or, or be tied up on my cases. I just, I've never liked having to tie people up when they have stuff to do. And, and guys wouldn't mind. It's just always the way I've always operated, right? I hate having people do things that I can do. So, you know, and, and you could probably know too, Murph, like I could have people write reports for me, but then, you know, you sit and wait on them or they're not done the way you want. Or so I've always, I've even, even when I was doing a title three intercept, I did a lot of the analytical work myself. We had analysts and you could go down to the, you know, you go down to the down to the office where all the analysts were, and you could have them do the information on the phones and write up the analytical work. But I'd rather just sit and do it myself. I know what I'm doing, knowing it's going to be done. And so, a lot of the work on this case, I just did myself. I wouldn't even ask for the analysts or anyone to get involved. But wow, I tell you what, there's there's no better team than a good, hardworking agent and an excellent analyst who complement oh, yeah. each other. That's a, that's a tough team to beat. Yep, that's for sure. So you're getting all of this great stuff, but so what are you doing with it? Like you said, you're not getting the dope. It's kind of like it's more just intelligence now, conspiratorial stuff. How do you make this thing move forward? Well, at this point, and, and I forget how many months later this was, but we went, again, great prosecutor. We went down and stood in front of the grand jury down in the federal courthouse in Miami, and we got a federal indictment charging Pedro Zorio and Carlos Restrepo with Title 21, USC 846, which is our our, our, our uh, federal drug charges. And uh, it was based upon the wire intercepts we had. And again, the cocaine seizures and the money seizures and, and the current wire intercepts. And basically we charged them with 400 kilograms of cocaine based on what they talked about. So they were facing charges on 400 kilos. I think it was a 20 year sentence they were looking at. And uh, we got search warrants for uh, Pedro Osorio's house. So that was really the next big step in this. Um, this was probably going into, this was probably early November that we'd gotten the warrant. Um, our, our telephone intercepts actually were expiring November 11th. We had information off the intercepts. It looked like Pedro Zorio was going to be leaving the country to Colombia. Um, I was getting a heavy push from my management to get him arrested before he left. Uh, for them, it was the highest level target we had. He was running the organization. He was the highest level member we had on our intercepts. So they really didn't want to lose this opportunity to get him. And my attitude was actually completely opposite, right? He just bought a brand new house. He's got a BMW. His wife and kids are here. He's coming back. And fortunately for me, he ended up leaving before we could get him. And you'll see it really worked out in my favor. So he flies down to Columbia. I think he was down there maybe a week or two. and. Uh, he came back, when was that? He came back right before December. I think it was late November. I had him back in Miami at his house. So on December 4th, this is December 4th of 2001 now, we went and did the search warrant at his house out in Pembroke Pines. So hit the door and, and locked him up. Did you find anything in the house worthwhile? Well, not related to drugs, but related to his meetings down in Columbia, yeah. I mean, we found all kinds of documents and things. And this goes back to, I mean, <clears throat> he had a, I mean, we knew he had talked about moving a big load, and and through this arrest and, and documents and things we found, we knew there was going to be a big load leaving Colombia, headed to Mexico, and in his binder we found things like he had the call signs of the vessels we're going to be using, 
he had the longitude latitude of where the Colombian and Mexican vessels were going to do the exchange at sea. Um, he had the two gigahertz frequency radio communications that the boats were going to be using. So again, we found quite a bit of information about this um, about this load that was going to be transferred. Uh, we played him obviously the recordings. He knew he was done, so um, he ended up obviously pleading guilty, and and uh, it went from there. But but what did you do to keep? The, I mean, if he's arrested and news gets back, don't they just change the whole shipment? I mean, how do you, how do you keep this thing working so that the the shipment and the boat and the ships everything remains in play? Well, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty unique, but he ended up he ended up going to the court that night, sealed courtroom, and, and pled guilty. Within 12 hours of being arrested, he pled guilty. And I had a federal wow, judge. I like those kind wow. of cases. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. And I had, a, I had a federal judge trust me enough to hand him to my custody after pleading guilty. And he went back to the DEA field office and lived in our office for two months on a blow-up air mattress 24-7. So we were buying on McDonald's, playing video games, and we lived with him for two weeks. Was so, it uh, two weeks or two months? Two weeks. Yeah, and, for two weeks. And this was in the Southern District of Florida? Yep, yep, yeah. Obviously, we couldn't let anyone know that he had been arrested or, or you know, things would have went south. So. Well, and that's the whole—so that, that gets back to my point. So to everybody else— He's still in play. He's still doing yep. stuff. But how do you handle his family? Because he's, you know, wife. He talked like, to them. The wife would come. Actually, the wife would come to the Miami field office with the kid. And we'd sit out at the picnic table and have lunch with the family. So, you know, the wife was on board and she knew what they had to do. And Was this down at the Coger Center or is this out in Yeah, in this is the Coger Center. Yeah, the picnic table between the two buildings. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> I got some slack for that, but you know, he's out uh, there. Yeah, with, that's pretty cool, man. He's out there with a federal arrestee in between the buildings. <laughs> well, it probably wasn't them having the meal. It was the conjugal visit that everybody was complaining about, right? Yeah, that too, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever you got to do to keep the guy happy, right? Um, speaking of loads, let's get back to the ship. Let's oh, get back to the other load. Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, oh, oh. Hey, unpaid, unpaid comedian. Thank you very much. Um, but so so to and you know who else this reminds me of too, Steve. Yeah. Um, who was the master of the f bomb that came from DEA that worked the case? Oh gee, uh, Tommy uh, Cedric. Tommy Cedric. <laughs> Remember how they kept that dude in play for quite a while? You know, for yeah. for months. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. You know, and and the thing I like about it, I mean that's the links that we're willing to go to, especially if you can get the court behind you, a federal judge to make these cases, because that's what you got to do to infiltrate these organizations. Well, obviously, because of, you know, I mean, we knew there was going to be a multi-ton load. We knew it was going to be leaving in the next week or two. We knew meetings happened in Columbia about this load. Uh, we had a pretty good destination. We had the coordinates of where the transfer was going to take place. So it wasn't going to be a couple months, and we just needed those couple weeks, fortunately. Um, obviously I think a big thing was, and I, like I said, it's not often the federal judge just gives you a guy and, you know, he's been now charged and here, take him. you know, my office, my management, you know, my supervisor at the time wasn't behind this entire thing. He, he thought that he just should have been kept inside and not released. And I had to go to the ASAC, the second level management and say, yeah, there's bigger fish. I mean, we've got to do this, and 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 they went on board with me and did it. But he's incentivized also to work off, work this off because uh, um, twenty years, yeah, yeah. So there is a specific rule, right, that you'll tell us about that you can invoke that if they show significant cooperation, they can work off their time. Yep, a hundred percent, hundred percent. So, so basically, I mean, based on him being with us, we knew. I mean, obviously, calls were made and things. We knew that this load had left Bonaventura, Colombia. It was leaving out of Bonaventura. Um, we didn't have a lot of good information. We knew it was on the route. Um, I think it was, I can't remember how many days in, um, that, that he, we had actually had information that had already met and the load had exchanged. So we knew that it had actually been transferred to the Mexican vessel. We knew they were going to be using Zodiacs to run it back and forth in the middle of the night between the vessels. Um, so we had good intel on that. What's a Zodiac? Can you explain that? Uh, these little speed boats, motor boats. So, rigid, they're, they're the kind of rib boats, the rigid inflatable boats, you know, that can, hey, uh, but so what, so you had one ship depart Columbia and then it's yeah. meeting with another ship that's going to be the ship. ship that, yeah, Mexican ship that'll then bring it 
uh, to its final destination? Bring it into Mexico, yeah. Um, some other, uh, before I continue with that, some other information we'd gotten after his arrest was that money that was seized in Chicago belonged to this woman named Sandra, who eventually we obviously figure out Sandra uh, Beltran Avila, you know, Queen of the Pacific. It was from 100 kilos that had been delivered into Chicago, and that was money that was being brought back. So that's really where she came into our radar. Um, and then we also obtained information about two Colombian traffickers that were living in Guadalajara. This guy, Juan Diego Espinosa and Mauricio Espinosa, um, they were brothers. Juan Diego was Sandra's basically paramour. It was her, you know, unlegal husband that she was living with. So her what kind of husband, her what kind of husband would you call him? Well, not married. You know, they call him a paramour or whatever you yeah. call it. What'd you call him? Unlegal husband. Unlegal, Unlegal? husband. <laughs> illegal. I've never <laughs> heard it was that illegal, term. Right? <laughs> okay. Just curious. So it's it's her side hustle. It's her side uh, you know, her squeeze. Yeah, but he's actually he's the one obviously tied and we find out later these are the two that are tied into the North Valle cartel. So Juan Diego and Mauricio, you know, she's sleeping with this guy, living with this guy, and he's he's really the connection to the North Valle cartel over in Colombia, which at that time was still being run by Diego Montoya, who was basically like the new Pablo Escobar in Colombia, probably one of the biggest names that came after Pablo, so besides Varela, but um so that was that was just additional information we gotten from them. Um and again we had Mauricio Espinosa in Gua Colombian in Guadalajara, we had Juan Diego. Now we started looking at Sandra Beltran. We know she was a Mexican. We start getting more and more information on her. I'll talk about her in a minute. <clears throat> they also identify just general names at this point, but these people really become big big later on. There was a, a broker out of Cali, Columbia by the name of Ramon, the supplier for the Norte Valle cartel. They knew him as Laner. And then really the big kingpin in Mexico that was receiving this load, this guy Julio, they knew him as El Cantante. But again, at this point, we didn't know the names. And eventually we indict and figure out all these people. But again, it's a game of just working your way up and up and up as we go and arrest people and extradite them and, and move on and on. So um, so anyway, we're back to the shipment now. Um, so at this point, uh, we had gotten notification. Uh, obviously over some phones that the, the transfer had just taken place. Um, this was like a week before Christmas. So the U.S. Navy launches a P-3 aircraft up. And at the same time this was happening, information came through from the Mazatlan, Mexico office. A couple agents down there had a case. And they had boarded this fishing vessel twice previously with information that had drugs, and it did not have drugs on it. It was empty. They had information that this vessel was headed out to do another load run. And this was coinciding with what we were doing. And we passed our information to the Joint Intelligence Center down in Key West. They passed theirs to the Joint Intelligence Center out in, um, out in, out in the West Coast in California. And these two ended up crossing paths. So now they had information coming from two different directions, from Mazalan, Mexico office, DEA, and from us that these, these boats may be in the area doing this load. So um, That gives a lot of reliability and credibility. Yeah. So how do you deconflict that? I mean, because you, you want to make sure not, I mean, they're going to look at it, right? But you're the case agent, right? So no matter what, this is still yours? Yeah, obviously, with the amount of information and the cartel members, they didn't have any direct information. They just knew that a boat was maybe getting a load of drugs. And again, they're not going to charge in Mexico. We're going to charge domestic in the U.S. So that, that never became an issue. They worked really good with us. So the Navy does, they put up this P-3 aircraft and they, they locate a vessel. They think it's the vessel. It's, it's the name on it's the, uh, the fishing vessel of Macell. They see it in the area, um, matches kind of everything we were given with coordinates and things. So this is now again a week before Christmas. So they launch a, uh, what was it, the USS Mobile Bay destroyer out of San Diego to do the intercept. And what they'll do is they'll send a, a U.S. Naval destroyer vessel out, but they'll have a, a group of Coast Guard, they call them the LEADAT team, Coast Guard personnel on the boat because the Navy can't do U.S. law enforcement. So the Coast Guard is the one who actually does the boarding and the interdiction and stuff. So that way there's a U.S. Uh, law enforcement presence there. Again, the Navy can't do it. So, But you've got some jurisdiction issues to work through too, right? Because you, you go from international waters to Mexican waters. They are never going to make it into U.S. waters for you guys to get a hold of them, right? No, it gets worse than that. The boat's flying a Mexican flag. So um, so the U.S. destroyer gets out there and uh, you know we find out it's got a Mexican flag on it. So we basically got to write 
the Office of International Affairs out of Washington, D.C., and the State Department got a request from the government of Mexico, a letter of no obligation to board this vessel. So we need their permission to get on this boat. And considering this boat had been boarded twice previously, that wasn't an easy ask. So um, we got, How did you convince uh, them? Uh, well, again, that was up to the embassy down there. I know there was a bunch of back and forth exchange, um, but I think the embassy put enough pressure on finally that, that they cooperated. So we did get cooperation finally. And, and they gave us authorization to board this boat. So, And, and just to give a, a shout out to our agents there in Mexico, what a tough job. One of the hardest places in the world to work as a DEA agent. Um, and, and, but you know, that, that's the, the beauty of having them there. They have the connections so they can go to the right people to get permission to board these vessels. We know we're, you know, we all know r corruption is rampant down there, but, uh, they do a fantastic job. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um, and then, you know, I kind of got a chronological layout here. I, I just read over it. Some of you, if you want, it's kind of interesting though. So this is from the actual U S Navy. So this starts on December 20. December 17th now, um, the, the, the aircraft sent the floor image back to the vessel for them to view. Um, they get a visual on the vessel. Um, let's see, the uh, helicopter positively identified the vessel. The vessel changed its direction. Now it's slowed to six knots. And now it again changed its direction, sped up to 11 knots. Uh, the U.S. Navy vessel began questioning the, the missile completed their questioning. Now, this is on December 18th. This is the next day. Um, they've, they've notified them by a VHF radio that they're going to their intent to board the vessel with the government of Mexico approval. Um, they did board the vessel. They commenced searching the vessel. They requested permission to bring U.S. Navy personnel on board to assist. So this goes on. This is December 19th now. December 20th, they swapped the night crew out. They began pumping seawater out of the fish holding tanks. They requested permission to use the U.S. Navy engineering team to assist because they had to go into some of these tanks with, with uh, scuba apparatus because of the gas and stuff. Um, they began mapping out the fuel tanks and the transfer systems. This is on the 20th now. So now we're almost three days in, and I was getting notification back that they had done ion scans for drugs, and they were coming up negative. And, and at this point, you can imagine the guy living with us in the office. He's like, I'll get our paddle boat and go out there myself. I mean, he was getting just, he was getting crazy. Like Now, were they really fishing while they were doing this? Or did they just no. have like old yeah, fish no. that were just laying in there? Well, I don't know. They had a fish tank full. So, um, you know, they set the water ballast tanks. They opened the forefront tank. And this just goes on and on and on. They eventually find, after emptying the fuel tanks and the fish tanks and that, they go in and, and they actually start finding drugs. And, and there's a great video. Um, I sent you a video, phenomenal video of the, the whole boarding by the Coast Guard, the search, them guys bringing up the kilos. The video is deceptive. The video makes it look like they did it like in 30 minutes. And you're saying we're going on three days right now. Yeah, well, they're just showing you the part where they found the drugs on the video. Yeah, they didn't show you the first three days on the boat. But um, while all this was going on, Mexico also sent the, I forgot what the name of the vessel was, but they sent their own military destroyer out there basically to take control of the load and take over the load. So they arrived, they stayed behind our vessel. They didn't board right away. They waited for us to do our job. But again, the Mexican Navy was now out there too with their vessel. Where are you at when this is going on? Do you get to go out to the scene or are you stuck back in the office? No, I'm in the office yeah, with our friend and listening to all this and getting updates. But this is now about the end of the third day or fourth day when I get notifications, they found drugs. And all of a sudden I start getting, yeah, they're up to 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, 7,000, 9,000, like 9,300 kilos of cocaine, which at the time I think was the fourth biggest seizure the Coast Guard ever had at sea. It was massive. I mean, on one vessel. Damn. Yeah, we, we couldn't believe it. We were just like. Well, and when you watch the video, <laughs> which I did, and you look at it, you go, these guys, I mean, if you think all you have to do is watch like the uh, the the shows that they have on Net Geo, like the the Customs and Border Protection shows that they have, where they show people coming across the borders, you know, and they're searching vehicles. There's a lot of places to hide stuff in vehicles, but when I saw these guys having to go to ships mm -hmm. and look at these huge container ships, and then you're thinking this, there is a lot of even it's a good sized boat, but there's a lot of places you can hide dope in that. So and you'll see on the video, I mean, they had just tons of communication equipment, computers, faxes. They had the, the boats we knew, the Zodiac boats, these, these single engine boats to run the loads back and forth. I mean, everything matched up with what he said. 
Uh, I think there was 20 crew members on 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 board this. It was a big boat, and you'll see in the videos it's it's a really large boat. Uh, basically, uh, the Mexican Navy then came on board, took over control of the boat. Um, this was kind of funny. I always joke about this, but they, you know, working up in D.C. and in the U.S., you get a, a sample of a case. It's usually a gram or two. Well, they sent the sample back with the U.S. Coast Guard to San Diego of 20 kilos of cocaine. <laughs> so it was one bundle of 20 kilos. And in the U.S., it'd be a career case. And that was my sample that came back. And that's what you were saying earlier when you were talking about samples. Uh, you know, you have a few grams here and there. That's when you said, no, I got I got a sample for you, 20 kilos. Well, it gets yeah. better because me and my partner were in Miami. This was a little later on now after all this happened. But we had to go out to San Diego and pick up the sample to bring it back to Miami. So me and my partner fly out to San Diego. We go out to the Carlsbad office and uh, we each put 10 kilograms in a duffel bag. So we're each carrying 10 kilograms. And of course, you know, in airport, we don't go through security. We go around security. So we walk around security with 20 kilos of cocaine, put it in the overhead compartment of American Airlines and fly back to Miami. Oh, jeez. <laughs> 20 kilos of cocaine in the overhead compartment. Thank God that didn't bust open. <laughs> yeah, the, the public never knows. Never oh. knows. So, <laughs> pardon, pay no attention here. Goes through the x-ray scanners. It's all good, right? You're flying <laughs> commercial with 20 kilos of Coke. Yep, yep, 20 kilos of Coke. An overhead compartment. <laughs> I, did you go to the bathroom and leave it unattended? Uh, no. Somebody was always sitting in the seat. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I tell you what, I tell you who's got the bladder of a freaking uh, – elephant or whatever. I was flying back from Pakistan and the guy that was the regional security officer or the assistant RSO there at the embassy, he was flying back to the United States. I think his tour was over, but he had a diplomatic pouch. He put it above him. Uh, we're all up in the business class area, the 747. He never once left it and went to the bathroom because I can't sleep on flight. So I'm awake the whole time. We're flying from Pakistan, from Islamabad to London. He never got up once, and he was drinking ten times more than I was. He's just—he's having pound on those free drinks. I think he's going. Thank God, I'm out of this place. You know, uh, he got one nice. of those pee bottles tied to his leg. Probably, yeah, along with twenty kilos of dope. You know, in a diplomatic. <laughs> Who knows what's in there? So, but we keep talking about the Queen of the Pacific. How did it get the name? I mean, where does she, where does she come into this now? Yeah. So just to finish up with the seizure. So me and my partner, we actually fly out. This this was my first time going overseas. So we fly out to Mazatlan right after the seizure happened, and we meet with the Mazatlan agents. And again, I'd never been overseas, and, and Steve could probably. I mean, I was this is my first time with the government overseas, and it was like I was just amazed. I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was like right out of the movies. I mean, these guys pull up, pick me up in an armored vehicle, and again, Mazatlan was one of our only offices. You can't have any dependents. You got to be single. And there's no government consulate there. They're by themselves in the Sinaloa, the most dangerous state of Mexico. Pick me up in an armored vehicle. We come pulling up to the office. Little of these guys have the gates open. Before we pull up, slam the gates shut. And uh, it was just something out of the wild west. Like I've never seen it in my life. But then that evening, they take me to their homes. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? This is like out of James Bond. I mean, these mansions on the golf course with jacuzzis and swimming pools and security guards. And I'm like, are you, this is how people live overseas? <laughs> this is the first exposure I had. This is amazing. That's <laughs> like, yeah, it's not like that everywhere, but it's not too bad. Was yeah. the agent you were, you were working, that wasn't Mike Chavarria, was it? That was Mike Cheveria, yeah. So I was down there with Mike and Ramon de la Garza and Eddie Bordon. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get Mike on the show maybe next year. He's got oh, some yeah. unbelievable stories in Mexico. Yeah, it was Mike and his team that worked this with me. So yeah, really good guys. Yeah. Outstanding agent. I mean, one of the best I've ever met. So anyway, we jump in so we jump in armored vehicles and we head down to Montanillo in the south of Mexico where they're bringing this load in. So we go halfway, we stop in Puerto Vallarta, spend a the night there, and then we finish up finally down in Montanillo. Again, we get down to Montanillo, and, and we end up staying in this most beautiful, all-inclusive resort I've ever been in my life. I mean, it, it was quite the experience. It was, it was an eye-opener for me. We had a good time. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But uh, go ahead. You know, there, there's, a, there's a saying in DEA, you can work the job or you can let the job work you. Oh yeah. You know, why not perks. you work the job and <laughs> let them pay you to go do stuff like that? That's that's right. But we, we go to the port the next day and they make a big dog and pony show out of so they got the big vessel coming in, the the missile, and they've got the soldiers on it, and they've got the military destroyer behind it escorting it, the Mexican military. They've got soldiers lined up in formation. They've got the uh, you know, Azteca TV stations out there. So they made a big show out of this whole thing, you know, offloading it and 
that they they spent probably a good eight hours sampling it. They sampled every double brick kilo of 9,000 kilos. So they cut it open, tested it, took a sample out. This probably took eight hours. I mean, it, you see it on the video. It was a I whole... saw that in the video. I'm going, Yeah. I mean, after a couple of kilos, you do some random samples. And it's like, <laughs> right. you're not you're going to all this work to hide a kilo of baking soda. <laughs> Well, then they, they, did, they did a press conference on one of the destroyers, another destroyer that was parked there. We went into the destroyer. They did a press conference for the media, and you could tell some of these people, some of these higher-ups, they didn't have happy faces. I mean, you could tell Somebody's the corruption be in involved. Trouble. Oh, yeah, some people were going to be in a lot of trouble. So after they, after they sample it and do all this testing, they, they put it into a semi-container, and they literally take a welder, and they weld it shut so nobody could get in. And uh, that's when we leave, and that's when the bribes start. And 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 we were getting it through, you know, cooperators and different people that, that the bribes were coming in to get this, these drugs back. Obviously, um, I think it was a week later we had. Well, actually, I take it back. So what happened was they were going to burn it. They put it out on a pallet, and it's a massive. I got good pictures of it, but they put it on this huge pallet, nine thousand kilos. And they're going to burn it. And Ramon de la Garza from the Ramon from the Modlon office got to go down and actually sample it to make sure they didn't change the packages. So he got the sample before it was burned, do random samples and make sure all the coke was really still there. Because otherwise, you know, they just would have put something out there and made it look like it was baking soda. They put baking yeah. soda in there. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, for our listeners, you know, you hear about the corruption in Mexico. It's true. It's real. It's been going on. It's not something that just happened over the last few years. It's been going on for years and years, and the cartels are taking over control down there, which is, you know, it's uh, politics doesn't want you to talk about that anymore, but that's the truth. And the fact that I'm sure there were quite a few high-ranking people that were killed over this. I saw in your presentation, well, I saw yeah, the say, prosecutor yeah, was killed. Yeah. yeah, it was about a week later. The federal prosecutor in Mexico was found in his car, shot up with AK-47. So he was murdered over the over that burning of the drugs. But, but wh why would people be so interested in trying to get that dope back? Because the street value of it was $185 million. Yeah, no, that was wholesale. No, street value would have been... Oh, wholesale. Oh, my God, that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, oh, would have been street value would have been. I mean, that load was probably worth what then, uh, over a billion then. By the time it got cut up, oh, hit I'm the sure. street, yeah, easily, easily, yeah, easily. Yeah. Okay, so what would you do for a billion dollars? Well, I'd probably bribe <laughs> somebody, get that thing. I saw him welding that. I'm going, damn. Yeah, it's going to be hard. It's going to take some work to get that thing unwelded. You know, and get to the dope in there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it took a metal saw for that. But... So anyway, after they burned the drugs, we we got a hold of the Guadalajara office, and uh, and they, they they initiated a joint investigation on Sandra Mauricio and Juan Diego down in, in Guadalajara. And again, you got to be really careful, obviously, how what information you pass on these investigations working with the Mexican counterparts because it gets leaked. Yeah, obviously. So the Mex the the counterparts in Guadalajara actually go up on wire intercepts on uh, on let's see who I think they went up on Mauricio and Juan Diego. And uh, through the intercepts, they just started finding all kinds of stuff. They found two businesses in Guadalajara that Mauricio owned. They found the million-dollar home in Guadalajara that Sandra and Juan Diego were living in with 20 luxury vehicles outside. Um, another million-dollar vacation home in Puerto Vallarta um, and a bunch of other stuff. I actually went down one time. I flew into Guadalajara, and we drew from Guadalajara over to to Puerto Vallarta through the beautiful tequila fields. And again, another awesome experience, but we get over there and we wanted to check out this million dollar vacation home he had in Puerto Vallarta. And of course we get up to a gated community. And of course the good Mexican agents I'm with convinced these guys to let us in. And we get up to the house and this garden is working outside. And of course these great Mexican, some of them Mexican, some of them U.S., but some of these great agents I'm working with convinced these gardeners to let us in his house because we're looking at buying a very similar house like his. So we're running around inside the house, checking out his cabinets, checking out the house. And I think somebody might have left in his nice big hardwood bed a message from DEA. I can't remember, but... <laughs> <laughs> When you say left a message, was this carved oh, into the wood or what? Yeah, yeah it could have been. <laughs> and I have no recollection of that, Senator. Uh, or else he was, it was just like writing your name in the snow, maybe. Maybe yeah, it was right. maybe the Except this was a little more permanent, right? So if this message had been written, what might it have said? Yeah, it might have had our initials there. I don't know. <laughs> hmm. Kilroy was here, that old woman. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So you got probably a few more dead people too, those poor gardeners. But <laughs> oh man, 
yeah, stuff like that doesn't really happen. It's just it's all a joke. Well, yeah, hey, of so course. Let's kind of um, you know, let's kind of then just kind of bring this to a close because you you made a mention though at the beginning, and it may have been before we started recording, but you talked about you didn't go to trial on anybody, right? So at the end of this, what for you, what was the net result? How many people indicted? You know, how many people convicted? Um, you know, kind of give us that uh, scorecard there. Yeah, no, so basically cut to the rest of the indictments and that Sandra ended up obviously we found out like you're saying a lot about her so her um I mean her she had family member it was Rafael Quintero was part of her family who ran the Guadalajara cartel Carl Quintero Miguel, yeah yeah Rafael Carl Quintero was a family member to her Miguel Angel Feliz Guerrero who is serving 40 years for the DA's murder that was her she's a niece of him so that's her uncle uh, just really heavy, heavy tied into um, Juan Jose Quintero Payan was extradited for drug trafficking charges. That was her uncle. She was actually married to two, two prior commanders of the uh, uh, two prior ex-police commanders down there who were drug traffickers. Both of them were killed by, by Sicarios. So she had this whole history of just always being tied into into a lot of the drug traffickers. Um, and And again, you were saying, you know, she was all over the media and stuff. So. Uh, we indicted her. We indicted uh, Mauricio was arrested in, in November 12th of 2002 in Bogota. Um, they actually spotted the Mexicans on surveillance. He fled back. So he got arrested in Bogota, came to the U.S. He pled guilty. Eventually, his brother was arrested at the same time as Sandra in the U.S. Um, they both were brought here. They both pled guilty. Uh, we did a really good job indicting that broker out of Cali, Colombia, Ramon. He actually had all of his fingerprints and everything removed from the entire system in Colombia. And it was through cooperation of some of the people here, we found out he had his son baptized at a church in Cali, Colombia. They went and met with a priest, and they found the baptism records, and we identified him through that. He had been working drugs since 84 in New York, worked with every major cartel player you could imagine in Colombia. And in his mom's house, when he got extradited to the U.S., was brought here in his mom's house. He had a three-quarter-inch floppy disk with the last five years of just millions of kilos of cocaine and every load he brokered, everything laid out. And it was used by New York and Tampa and all kinds of other districts as evidence in their cases. It was incredible evidence. What a um, man. Yeah, Lander Valencia, he supplied the load. He was extradited, brought over. He cooperated. Um, his his sister was actually the mayor of Zorzal, Colombia, that was put in place by Diego Montoya. She flew to Miami to meet with us to try and help out Lehner and his two brothers who were in Mexico that we also indicted. So we were meeting with her. Um, some of the indicted targets I had before they got arrested, I had orders for their arrest in Mexico and Colombia. They were meeting me in Costa Rica with the attorneys to try and cooperate before they got arrested. So I was meeting a lot of these guys in Costa Rica before their arrest to see if they could you know, kind of help themselves out. So. Uh, just it was a lot of indictments, a lot of indictments. Everybody was caught and brought to the U.S. and pled guilty. Nobody ever went to trial. Um, so all in all, I mean, it was just, just an amazing, successful case. This case kept going after I was in Colombia. I went to Colombia because of the work I did in this case. I was traveling to Colombia probably every other month for about two years, working with the agents down there, identifying these people working the case, and and that really helped me get my position down there. So in 2007, I got a position in Cartagena. I did three years in Cartagena, and then I went to uh, Bogota for four years, where I really oversaw our, and ran our intercept programs down there. So, and that kind of got me into the career I'm in now with the, really the technology. Um, went back to Rhode Island University, got a master's in digital forensics, and and uh, set myself up for retirement. So, wow! And when you were in Cartagena, uh, was Sherry Foster there by any yeah, chance? Yeah, Sherry was there. Yep. Yep, Guess who we've been texting back and forth with while we've been on yep. this podcast? <laughs> no, Sherry, needs, Sherry needs a contact. Uh, well, I, I need to tell her we're talking to you right now, but Sherry needs a contact for something she's working on. We said, hey, we'll uh, we'll get it to you. So uh, I will tell her we were just on a, a call with. Uh, oh, that's funny. She's a previous guest on, on Game of Crimes. Here. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, in fact, she's going to be in Orlando last next week. So we're getting together for dinner with my wife and, and her. I'm not sure she's bringing JP down with her or not. Uh, you remember JP, what, right? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I lived with them for three years. Hey, yeah. Wait a minute, not Javier, right? Her uh, JP. JP, her JP, JP. Yeah. <laughs> I believe he introduced uh, chicken wings to Cartagena, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did. He opened his own business there. Yeah, we had. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, so, question I have to ask everybody because I I did some work on Plan Colombia down in Bogota, and so the question I always have to ask everybody: Did you go eat at Montserrat? 
Oh, of course. Every of everybody course. that everybody. came, I took them to Montserrat. Actually, yeah, I take yeah. them up to a steak Casa Brava up on the mountain overlooking the city. Great restaurant yeah. if you ever get there. But Fantastic. beautiful. Uh, yeah, I mean, I did that after I left Columbia. I went back to Boston, and then I finished in Homestead, Florida. I retired about four years ago. So, and really got a chance to get into my second career my passion i've always loved computers and now I, and and from what i hear you kind of got a cyber background but uh, i left to go work for a forensic software company and and landed the spot i'm in now with magnet forensics which uh they're out of waterloo canada and and pretty much spend my time now i'm managing a group we deploy their enterprise products but uh it's a great company because the, the owner was a actually a uh, a cop up in waterloo canada who got medical problems had to leave the police force for a while. And this was probably about 12, 13 years ago and didn't like the products that were out there. And he decided he wanted to do a product that instead of basing it on the file systems to base it on actually artifacts and developed this product, started giving it away for free. And, and now today we're at 500 employees on the uh, Canadian stock market and probably one of the premier products out in the US right now for computer forensics. So very cool. Yeah. Very cool. But that, that's where I'm at now. So. Look at that. Start off as a little kid from a town where they only had one murder in 30 years. You go to Milwaukee, you run into, you have run-ins with Jeffrey Dahmer, well, sort of, you know, and um, all that stuff. And then you end up with, you know, I mean, that that is one of the largest seizures, obviously, it's still stands. I mean, anytime you can pull that much dope off, it's, you know what, again, we go back to, it's not so much the dope that hurts them, it's the money. They They've just lost potentially you know, Absolutely. hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. That's, you want to hurt somebody, take away their money, take away their toys. Yeah, a lot of, I didn't even mention, I mean, a lot of people died in this case. Um, some of my indicted targets, I think it was Laner. No, it was Juan Diego and Mauricio lost two brothers in Columbia over this, got killed. One guy shot and survived. Mauricio, when he was in Bogota, I actually sent, I went down to meet his girlfriend while he was in prison in Bogota. Supposedly he wanted to provide some information to me and, and when I met with her, she really didn't provide any information. But a couple of weeks after I left, she disappeared, was never seen again. So, yeah, there was a lot of a lot of people who lost their lives over it. That's for sure. You know, as they say in Colombia, there's a saying down there, "Que pena." Yep, yep, que pena. You go into the business. And you know, that's I'm, and not to go off on a tangent, but I'm going to for a second. That's the thing when we speak to young people. You know, you try to get the point across to them: this is not a glamorous lifestyle. There's nothing uh, magnificent about it. There's two ways out. You can go to prison or you can die. You just don't do 20 years and decide you're going to retire. There's no retirement plan in the cartel. Right, exactly. Well, there is, but... There's an expirement plan, but there's not there a go. retirement plan. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. That's yeah. a good way to put it. Oh, there was one indictment I didn't mention. The, the biggest guy I had indicted in Mexico was this guy, actually, Julio Beltran Quintero, El Cantante. So he was receiving these loads, and he was receiving... A lot of loads. He just lost a prior 20-ton load, but I had an indictment for him, and, and a, a few weeks in after the indictment, I got some pictures in there. He was shot up. Him and four federal police that were protecting him were shot up and killed, but it was a hit by uh, El Chapo. And, then, and in fact, when they just did El Chapo up in New York, that was one of the one of the assassins that he was charged with, or that they identified him with. But it, it he had issues with the Sinaloa cartel, and that's all. I never got this guy. It was a as you know, it was a what is it a a cleared arrest by death, so <laughs> cleared by exception, uh, offender yeah. no longer available for court, and, it's, and it shuts down on the recidivism rate, doesn't it? Yeah. It cuts down on the recidivism. <laughs> well, hey, look, man, there's a ton of stuff we could probably go into, but keep trying to keep with our new format and stuff. Yeah. Let's bring this to a close. But the first, you hang on, don't go anywhere. But first thing for us is us. This is us saluting you saying job well done anytime you take 9500 kilos or whatever you got off the street um man that that Not you on. impact society in a big way absolutely and this is you know for our listeners this is another one of the true heroes that you would never have heard about if it weren't for game of crimes people who are willing to to leave the comfort of their homes in the united states and go work in some of the worst environments in the world to try to help protect Americans. So Tim, God bless you, brother. It's been great to have you on here. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Thank you to your company for, uh, for coming on board with us and, and uh, being, you know, supporting you and your interview today. We got our listeners don't know, but we got Victor listening in. So we'll give him a shout out today uh, from magnet forensics. And it's just been a true, true honor to have an old friend and a brother law enforcement, especially DEA agent on here with us. So thank you, my friend. No, thank you. It was great being on with you guys. Great to see you again, Steve. It's been a while, so. 
It has been. All right. Hang on with me, Tim. Don't go anywhere. As we tell everybody, this is our new format. It's our outro. So I hope you guys enjoyed that uh, episode. If you did, show Tim how much you like him. Show Tim how much you can validate him by going to Spotify and Apple, hitting those five stars, and tell somebody you're somebody, you're special, and we really like you. So hit those five stars over there. Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. That's where we're going to post all the videos and the stuff we're talking about here. Follow us on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, also, head on, head on over to PayPal, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes. But where you got to be, Murph, where you got to be, Murph, uh, and just, you know, where you got to be. <laughs> I don't know. Where you got to be? I got to go to dinner be? in a little while. No, you need to come over and check us out on Patreon. Just give us a shot. See what you think about it. And after you go to Patreon to check it out, give us some feedback. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. You know, we're, we want we want you to be happy with what we're doing. We enjoy doing it, but you're the one giving us your hard-earned cash. So let us know what your thoughts are. Constructive criticism is always welcome. And if we have a difference of opinion, not a problem. We can still be friends. Why can't we be friends? This is oh, our, yeah, this our new outro music. So, hey, guys, <laughs> no, but you know, not. but not. No, but don't go anywhere. Hey, but you guys hang on. But everybody else, thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. <laughs>